This podcast is brought to you by Gemmer. Collect, trade, share on Gemmer.com. And how are you, Rebecca? Well, it's great to be here with you again and talk, talking stife as always. Um, a lot has happened since we've talked last. There's been a lot of stife auctions and a lot of great stife finds, and I look forward to updating your audience on what some of those things are. Well, yes. Well, why don't we start right off the bat and talking about these fines. Fines is always a great subject. And first of all, though, for the person that didn't listen to the last one, can you give a quick nutshell what is Stife and why people collect? Absolutely. Stife is the brand that I love, and I'd love you all to love it as well. It's a great collectible brand. It's a German brand. The Stife company is located in southern Germany, and it's been producing wonderful toys since um, as early as 1880, believe it or not. So Stife are the items that have the button in the ears, and that's one way if you can identify a, a real authentic Stife, although sometimes the buttons are taken out or fall out. But Stife is the one brand that you see on programs like Antiques Roadshow when someone holds up a teddy bear and someone says it's a beautiful bear, it's worth several thousands of dollars, chances are it's a Stife. Stife is uh, perhaps the oldest, one of the oldest toy manufacturers still in existence today and one of the very few toy brands that actually, um, for its vintage products, the items and the values often increase over time. This isn't seen with, with a lot of collectibles in the world today. When you're talking about fines, are you talking about fines that you had, or are you talking about fines that other people have found? Well, in terms of fines, of course you always want to have them yourself, but that's not always entirely possible. I think what's wonderful about the Stife community is that when something terrific is discovered, very frequently it is shared with the world, and that's always a lot of fun. And I think because of the nature of social media and such, things are shared um, a lot on on Facebook and such. I get a lot of questions about items that people have found um, coming to me through my blog, and I have a lot of fun answering those questions online. And happy to do that if any of your um, listeners have some interesting items they'd like evaluated or valued. In terms of my personal finds, I'm incredibly fortunate that I work with a large number of collectors all over the world and often take in collections or help handle collections for people, and very often there might be one or two treasures amongst a collection, and that's always very exciting. I've also found recently a few nice things um, at auctions and also through other channels where, where people are, are interested in, in learning more about pieces that they have. And, and once in a while, you do find something extraordinary on eBay. Um, it's becoming less and less common to do so, but within the last few months, I found two puppets from the late 1920s that were just fantastic, and I really couldn't believe my eyes when I saw them, um, and I bought them right away. Um, and then I looked at the price tag. But the sticker shock went away when the items arrived because they're just so fantastic and so unusual. Would that one happen to be the snowman that I looked at in the other room? The snowman puppet that you looked at in the other room was a really interesting piece for a number of reasons. It's actually not that old. It's from, I believe, the 60s or the 70s, and it's made out of a material called Draylon, which is an artificial plush. For some reason, collectors really aren't all that terribly interested in Draylon items, but this particular item, the snowman puppet that you saw, it was only made for a couple of years and is very unusual. I guess very few were made or very few survived, so when you see one in good shape, they usually go for you know a couple hundred dollars. The pieces that I received, the puppets that I was referring to, were from the late 1920s and made out of mohair. One of them was a dog named Treff, and this Treff puppet was based on a very um, beautiful and distinguished-looking 
bloodhound dog that Steiff made in the late 1920s and early 1930s. And the cat is a Siamese cat named Siami, also based on a cat design um, from the late 1920s. What's so unusual about very old hand puppets is that because these items were designed for fun and play, a lot of them don't make it uh, really just wore out, had tremendous play wear, or just fell apart over time. So the fact that you have an item that was specifically designed for a lot of fun and a lot of hands-on use, still in good condition today from the 20s, is ex exceptional and extraordinary. And these two patterns um, really transcend that because they are so rare and in such good shape. All right, a lot of times we think of Stife, or at least I have for many years, and I think about the teddy bear, of course, that is the most popular and most desirable Stife, but there's some real oddball pieces out there. And uh, are there pieces that are being discovered that were unknown? Because I know last time when we talked, you mentioned that some items did not make the catalog of the Stife factory. So let's talk a little bit about that. It's always really fun to find something that no one's ever seen of or heard of before, or at least in anybody's recent memory. And I think that because Stife is a German company and it's been around for so long, that people tend to think that they've captured everything that they possibly can in their literature and in their records. And for the most case, they've done a really good job. However, there's always a few items that maybe they made just a handful of them, or maybe they were what's called a customer special, and that means it was an item designed for a company or um, an organization specifically for them that wasn't designed for the general market, and perhaps very few were made, and it wasn't... Uh, it, and those sales weren't recognized in, in, in the way Stife would, would register other sales. So those things come up to the market once in a while and are very exciting. Um, and I think it's also, a lot of people use standard Stife reference books for uh, learning about Stife, and they really are a great way to learn about the brand. But like anything, they're not perfect. I would say the regular reference books, the Stife Sortiment books that we all know and love, are probably 80 to 90% accurate and complete. And that's a fantastic record, but it's not perfect. And so oftentimes people will find things that are not listed in the reference books or don't look exactly like the reference books. And um, that's always very exciting. But uh, you have to keep in mind that everything that Stife made is made by hand, at least the, the beautiful mohair vintage pieces. So everything will have a slightly different look. Um, and it's very exciting to, to look at a series of items, vintage items, that are supposedly the same model, and they all have a different facial expression or slightly different size or slightly different color, and that's very exciting. Yeah, it's kind of like um, out in the animal kingdom. Animals might look um, similar, but they're always just a little different, just like people. All right, so why don't you give us some examples of those uh, rare or hard-to-find or recently found examples? Let me give you two examples of two things that I found relatively recently that were extraordinarily exciting to me. Um, and both of them I really didn't know existed until they literally arrived on my doorstep. The first is a life-size or studio panda. And this guy is probably over six feet tall. He's standing on his back feet and his paws are off to the side. He, he literally is the size of a giant standing panda. I had looked... Um, once he arrived, I did a tremendous amount of research trying to figure out who he was or where he came from, and no one had heard of him. He, wasn't, uh, he didn't appear in any literature that I could find, and I contacted my colleagues in Germany and across the world saying, have you ever seen anything like this? And, and no one had. Ironically, I bought him at auction, um, at an auction here in the United States. He was uh, from an auction house in the Midwest, and someone had found him wrapped up in bubble, pa uh, bubble paper um, in a storage unit somewhere. 
So it was just bizarre. Like, why is this one-of-a-kind spectacular piece sitting in a storage unit in the Midwest wrapped in bubble paper? Well, for whatever reason, and only he knows um, his story, uh, he's now in my home, and it's extraordinarily exciting. And he's, he's really uh, such a great focal point for my living room. He, he sits behind one of my big chairs, so when you sit in the chair, it appears that you're sitting in a throne. And this caught the eye of one of my friends from um, the UK who actually sent me a small velvet crown from Buckingham Palace to put on the giant panda, so he truly is the king of the room. So that was very exciting. The other relatively recent find that I um, was fortunate to adopt into my collection, I had heard about him and seen him online, but never in a million years thought I would ever have him. What had happened was... Um, a collector had contacted me from the Mid-Atlantic area who had a very large collection and asked me to um, look at this collection and tell me what he had and what it was worth and would I be interested in, in adopting some of these pieces or, or selling them for him. And I always welcome people to do that. If you have a collection that you need appraised or you're looking to move that along, by all means, contact me. And I do this all the time. But this fellow came and he had three or four very large crates and he pulled things out and everything was terrific but somewhat ordinary. Um, and I told him what he had. And then he pulled this long-legged zebra out. And he said, oh, I'm not really interested in this. It's very funny looking. I never really liked it. And my eyes hopefully didn't pop out of my head. Um, but they probably were in my own mind. And what he had was a, a very, very unusual, what's called a lulac or long-legged comical zebra. And Stife had made these pieces in the 50s and 60s and even up to the 70s, which were comically shaped, uh, exaggerated cartoon animals with extremely long arms and legs. And many of them were cataloged, but the zebra I had never seen in any publication before, and it was just terrific. And I asked him about it, and he had purchased it at F.A.O. Schwarz as a child. So I know that it is from F.A.O. Schwarz, and it's my best guess that this was something that was made for F.A.O. Schwarz in a very, very limited edition or maybe just a handful were made and sold at F.A.O. Schwarz. But uh, no one had ever seen a, these before um, in, in any type of literature. And having one in my, cat, in my collection was just an extraordinary addition. And I, I feel very proud to have in my collection. And when collectors come to my house, it's one of the first things that they lay eyes on and they always ask about because it it's so incredibly unusual. This just made me think of something that oftentimes people collect different things and they know you know, something about them. And if someone really collects them in depth and they know everything about, but very specific items. But Stife, there's so many different types and so many different kinds, but it also seems that the Stife collector is very knowledgeable. And is it true that they're as knowledgeable as they seem to be? Well, I think that for some reason the Stife brand um, really engages people. People have a lot of passion for it. And that's because, in some cases, it's a lifelong collection. It's not something that most people pick up in, in, their, in their adult years. Most people have grown up with the brand or, or have, are part of a multi-generational family who is collecting, which is my case exactly. I'm the third-generation collector. Um, I think that there's just so much to learn and so much to know. People love to discuss Stife. People love to debate Stife. You can't really know everything about the brand, and nobody's Nobody's ever perfect in their assessment of what an item is or was or, or how much it might value. I think it's all part of the discussion. I've never claimed to be um, an expert in Stife. I love the brand. I advocate for the brand. I try to be a thought leader for the brand. But I'm sure there's a lot of people who know a lot more than I do, and that's totally fine, and I welcome the conversation. 
But I think that people really develop a passion for the item and want to know as much as they can about it. It's just such a great brand to learn about. And the product development timeline really reflects what was happening in Germany and around the world. And it's just a great way to discover history and, um, and grow your passion at the same time and make friends while doing it. All right, say something comes to your attention and it's like an oddball piece that, oh, say what you were talking about earlier, it's a custom-made piece for a client. How would you know for sure that Stife actually made it? There's a lot of ways to tell if an item is authentically Stife and a few clues that you look for if an item doesn't have any ID or you've never seen it before. In terms of the ID, Stife products are known for three essential forms of ID. The first is the button in the ear, and then an ear tag, and then a chest tag. And of course, when you're presented with something new, you always look for these items to make sure that they're there or not there, and what they may look like as these things have changed over time. And one way to date something is by the, the look and form and shape and color of these particular three items. But if you get something that doesn't have any Stife ID, and that's, that's relatively common, some of the buttons do tend to fall off, people remove tags, or, or in some cases they, they might not have had ID tags, or if they were never designed to leave the factory, they might not have had any ID on them at all. There are certain things that you can look for. Stife is, is, is known for, it's really, it's exceptional styling, beautiful fabrics, wonderful handiwork. And you really look at things very closely, like the quality of the eyes, the quality of the stitching, the quality of the airbrushing or felt, um, the construction of things. Nothing at Stife really is done in a vacuum. If you find a kitten, for, for instance, that looks a little bit different than other kittens you've seen, um, it would be most, most unusual for Stife to create a brand new pattern for a cat, but it would be not unusual to have a traditional pattern that maybe was colored a little bit differently or had slightly different shape or form or expression. So you really look for degrees of things. A lot of the times if I'm given something I don't know what it is, I'll look at it and I'll say, well, this sort of reminds me of. And that's, for instance, how I, when we talked a little bit earlier about the long-legged Lulac zebra, it looks very similar to the Stipe's long-legged Lulac mule. So I looked at the mule, the donkey, and it had a lot of similarities in design um, and that's how I, I really could help not only date it in terms of the period in which it was produced, but also sort of decide where it fell along the Stife production timeline. And I think just knowing what came before and after different pieces helps you date them as well as gives you a sense of comfort that you have identified it as, as a valid Stife piece. So you just mentioned the button in the ear, and the question is why a button in the ear, and whose idea was it, and when did it start? The Stife button and ear is one of the trademarks that Stife is really, really known for, and they've had it since the turn of last century. What had happened is Stife had created and invented the teddy bear, and these became so popular that other companies in Germany and around the world started creating teddy bears, and uh, Stife felt there would be some patent infringement. So they decided to use the button and ear as a way of really differentiating their products and letting people know that these were indeed Stife products. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, myths and such about how the actual button was created and, and, and why it was created. One of the things that I've learned most recently is that um, Stipe decided to use a button in the ear with a, with a tag because they had seen animals at, uh, I think it was the World's Fair at the turn of last century, had the animals had a button with a number in their ear and they thought that was a very creative and clever way of 
documenting their items and putting their trademark in them. So it is, it is very possible that the idea of the button in the ear came actually from live livestock. Wow. Um, one of the things I was thinking of, something that is real obscure, that no one has ever seen one before. Does this make that piece valuable, or is it still the teddy bear number one? Well, that's a really interesting question, and I think it depends on who you ask. It, it's as a, as a person who does a lot of cataloging for auction companies and a lot of copy describing products, I always say something is worth what someone will pay. I know that sounds a little bit... Um, aloof, but that's the fact of the matter. I, everything has a price tag associated with what someone will pay for it. So if you find something that's incredibly rare, one of a kind, it's worth what you'll pay for it, or worth what somebody else will pay for it. I think at the end of the day, the stiffed teddy bears will always be the most expensive or have the highest price tag associated with them, although there are really unusual finds and one of a kinds that can make you know, five figures or, or even six figures on a very good day. All right, we're getting close to wrapping it up. Um, just for the beginner out there that's looking to collect Stife, do you have any quick advice you can give them? I think the most important thing for a beginner or even an expert is to collect truly what you love. If it's truly a collection and not designed for business, you really want to surround yourself with things that you think are beautiful, that really resonate with you, that have a calling to you. So I would really only purchase what you love and what you want to have around for a while. If you are buying to resell, the most important thing is to buy things in as good a condition as possible with as many forms of ID as possible. But it's getting harder and harder to sell because um, the Internet has made products so much more accessible. So it's really the exceptional items and exceptional conditions that are catching the collector's eye and um, are bringing in the big dollars. Well, speaking of collecting things you love, um, you can barely move in your house. <laughs> you have a very large collection. and. and uh, it, the thing that uh, I thought off right off the bat was, hmm, what, how does your husband feel about this? <laughs> well, I'm incredibly, incredibly fortunate. We've been married 25 years. He calls him, I'm Stife Gal, he calls himself Stife Guy, and he calls himself a groupie. And that's really very, very helpful. He's not an expert by any means, but he's incredibly loyal and incredibly supportive. And I think he takes great pride in bringing people into our home to see our collection. It's a, a rather unconventional home, but uh, it's a lot of fun to be here. And I think if you really are an elite collector or really have an enormous passion to have beautiful things in your home of a certain ilk, you really need a supportive partner because you know, it really does become an important part of your life. We're very fortunate that when we travel, we do two things as constants in our, in, our, in our voyage. My husband loves to sing and music, so we always attend a concert somewhere, wherever we are on the planet. And I love to go antiquing and look for Stipe, and we do that. And I think what it's allowed us to do is to weave a beautiful life um, together over many years of, of, of exploring what we love and really supporting each other um, wherever we are, home or abroad. Wow, that's very nice. And your husband's a very nice man. I've met him a number of times. So that's it for the show today. I want you, if you would, to give out your blog and where someone can find you and start sending you pictures of Stife that they have out there. I'm happy to take a look at photographs and basically tell you what you have and perhaps when it was made and a little bit about the item. It's impossible to really give hard values um, just with pictures alone, so I hesitate to do that. 
the best place to get me is on my blog. It's called My Stife Life, and all you have to do is Google that, and I should come right up. I've been doing my blog since about uh, 2008 or 2009. I post weekly about a vintage Stife treasure or an adventure that we've had or something interesting that someone has written to me about. So if you love Stife, it's a great way to stay in touch with the Stife community and learn a little something new every week. I certainly do by writing it. Well, thanks so much, Rebecca. And we'll have to think of another show to do another time. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, and thank you, everyone, for your interest in Stife. Hopefully you'll love it even more now, after the interview, than before. This podcast is brought to you by Gemmer. Collect. Trade share on Gemmer.com.